Hey everybody, welcome to the 8th episode of Digging Deeper. It's been a while, but let's go. This is another episode of Digging Deeper, and this is a special episode because this is the first menage a pod that we've done. Well, we have two guests. Uh, we have um, my friend Razi Khan, who was uh, in episode two, and he's back by popular demand. This is my first menage in general, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so for people who didn't enjoy the first time, just tune me out, uh, uh, but I'm happy to be here. And we also have our friend uh, Kieran Nair. Kieran Nair is our, our tennis partner that we play weekly, but also he's a hospitalist physician. Um, but we also think he could be a part-time tax accountant <laughs> with all the knowledge that he has. And uh, Kieran actually has a uh, blog uh, called financiallyfreemd.com. As, uh, that's uh, one of his interests, I think. Right, Kieran? Definitely. And uh, so we thought we would talk a little bit about um, our kind of opinions about finances, how it's changed as we've gone older and progressed through our careers. And uh, I think we'll start with that. So do you mind if I ask you, Kieran, first? Yeah, definitely. I'm excited. Um, about, you know, in where did your financiallyfreemd.com come from? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It really, for me, came from, you know, a phase in life where, before, when I didn't have much interest at all in finance, I went through residency and found that a lot of the doctors I was meeting really seemed ignorant around a lot of these concepts. And it made me feel the need at that point in time to jump in, to take some onus of learning this stuff for myself and uh, make sure that I wasn't just relying on other people's you know, opinions for these big things in life that would influence where I was going to go. And uh, I, I spent a significant amount of time reading around this stuff. And after a period, I found a few friends asking me about these things, and I decided this would have been a huge resource for me way back when, when I was first starting out. And I thought if I could do something of use to, to put this out there for other doctors who often we focus so much on medicine that we lose track of these other areas that really have a big influence on our life. So that was a big impetus. And uh, did you have any role models growing up, or you really are basically self-taught in this area? Yeah, I think, you know, my parents, fortunate for me, instilled some basic, you know, financial uh, skills with just budgeting and being somewhat prudent and trying to plan forward and that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, beyond that, to be honest, most of it is just me driving myself to learn a lot of this stuff and going from there. And actually, so I want to talk about how, you know, as kids, when we use our parents as role models in all sorts of parts of our life, including finances, what were your experiences growing up um, viewing your parents in terms of how important money is, what money can do for you, um, how, some of the pitfalls to avoid. Um, do you remember some of those maybe conversations you had with your mom or dad? Yeah, I think, you know, probably similar to you guys. My, my parents were first-generation immigrants to Canada, and so I think their mindset was very uh, risk-adverse and uh, in a mindset of, you know, saving heavily to try to provide for our futures as kids, uh, you know, p putting us through university, et cetera. So there wasn't a lot of talk about investing in that sense, but 
going through the process of saying, don't spend everything you earn. Saving is really important for your future. And setting that tone was a big part of it. But beyond that, I can't say that there was a huge amount. I, I presume it's kind of similar to what you guys would have experienced. And Razi, you're free to talk too as well in this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for uh, giving me that privilege, Ben. No, <laughs> um, no I mean, I, I think I, I completely agree. Uh, I don't think that there was any plan or um, uh, specific advice that my parents gave me, more specifically my dad, um, who was in charge of the, the finances in, in my house or in, in his house, I guess. Um, but, uh, I think there was just a, a general, uh, frugality, um, a, a general, um, don't spend above your means. Um, I, I abandon all of that uh, now, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, no, I mean, I, I think, I think exactly what, what Kieran said, when you grow up in a family where, um, there isn't an abundance of, of extra money, um, I think the only rule is that you, you spend what you can spend, which is, um, as little as possible. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that was a general, um, trend in the family. Um, and I think what's interesting is even now amongst my parents, uh, it's still difficult for them to spend. Um, even now that they are financially settled, they're comfortable. I think, um, there's, there's still a natural tendency for them not to uh, overspend and over budget, um, which is why they always stay with me when they come here. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> and I just want to remind people who are listening that these are just our experiences growing up uh, and our opinions. This is not to be generalized to say this is the only way to manage finances and, and whatnot. Because I think I had similar upbringing with, as you guys with my parents where I was taught to really um, save, definitely not spend beyond, beyond your means, probably save way more than you probably need. Um, and, and I guess that possibly comes from, not to touch on growing up with immigrant parents again, where they maybe didn't grow up as affluent, um, where they really had to save for everything that they that they could spend, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I think the, the one other thing I would say is that for them, there was a general anxiety to everything. They weren't sure of everything. They were coming to a new society. Um, so they they really didn't know what the next day held. Um, so I, th I think that's in part where some of that was, was born. Oh, definitely. And, and one of the things that really struck me when I was in residency, and, and uh, you know, for preface, it was around the time of the financial crisis with the great banking crisis around 2008, 2009. But I remember being with a doctor in the emergency room and talking about a trip I was about to go, just a basic backpacking trip with uh, my uh, wife. And he was talking about how he'd love to be able to do something like that. And I thought that was absolutely crazy given that he'd already been a, you know, a doctor for a number of years. Uh, but he basically said he was living paycheck to paycheck and, and uh, you know, between his boat and his house and a number of the other things that were there. And it, it literally at that point in time blew my mind. I went home that night and really thought about it and saying, how can you go from where we're at as a resident making so little and then getting to that point where you're making a substantial income and then living paycheck to paycheck. It just made no sense. And that, that made me realize this is something I got to take care of because uh, this is determining a big part of where you're going to be in your forties and wanted to live the life I wanted to live. Yeah. And I want to touch on, you know, how much discipline it really takes to be able to be financially free. Um, but I just thought of how, um, do you think 
the way we view money in our generation is drastically different from the way our parents viewed money. In terms of, do you think they valued money a lot more importantly than we do in our generation? Like, what, what do you what do you think? It's an interesting question. I, you know, I think it it's almost a dynamic shift, like like Razi was saying, where if, if you grew up in a setting where you were uh, a bit concerned that you might not have had enough to be able to get through life at a certain point, that makes you much more conservative in your stance as to what you're going to do with your money moving forward. Myself, growing up a little bit more privileged in a middle upper class background, despite being first immigrant family, my dad was a, a doctor. That didn't. I didn't have that mindset. I very much went and said. At a young age, it would be very reasonable to be, you know, somewhat risky in a, in a general sense because I have a very long time horizon to invest, and that was a, a big part of, you know, if I if I could say I'm in a better financial spot right now than than some other peers, it's because I, I saw that opportunity set right in front of me and thought this makes intuitive sense from a re, you know a logical basis, but I know that when I've talked to my dad about that, he said, you know, I, I agree with you, it makes sense, but I just didn't have that opportunity set in front of me. I didn't think that I could take on that risk at that point in time you, you know my life had not gone in the same way that yours had to to feel like that opportunity was there in my experience what I've seen with my parents and some of their friends is that they almost view money as uh, it's it's fear like fear of not having money um, almost a bit of post-traumatic stress maybe partly from their upbringing which is um, personally I haven't experienced and I'm very fortunate that way and maybe I think we all grew up quite similarly. So I think the way we view finances now is really for financial security in order to support a lifestyle that we want to live. Right? Yeah, definitely. I agree. Completely. Uh, I mean, I think the other thing is that there was such a lack of emphasis on uh, personal enjoyment and personal fulfillment uh, amongst my parents. <laughs> so, I mean, not that they didn't enjoy their life and uh, I, I don't want to convey that they were like miserable, depressed people. They, they were happy, but it was always uh, personal happiness is secondary um, to being um, financially okay. Um, and in part, that was because they had uh, me and my sister um, around and they, they needed to take care of us and all those things. So I think that's one of the reasons why they may view uh, money in a different way. And I, I think, I mean, I think for us, the big thing is, is personal enjoyment, personal fulfillment, happiness, and then money. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily know if they had that opportunity. Um, so um, that's, I think, probably the biggest reason why why they may view money and financial security in general differently than, than we do. And I think they base a, a lot more of their self-confidence on how financially secure they were compared yeah. to us. I mean, I view I, I, a lot of my self-confidence is based on, on whatever money I'm making. So, you know, in bad months, <laughs> in bad months, I'm, I'm pretty down. So uh, but uh, but that can vary. Yeah. Actually, I thought your self-confidence came on how well you played tennis that week. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 there's, there's multiple reasons for why I'm depressed. So it may be my backhand. It may be just, yeah, a, a lack of, of finances. So, yeah, you can pick any reason. So, um, Yeah, so, I, I mean, I guess you probably agree, Karen, that uh, our parents' generation probably viewed money a lot more differently than, than we did. Yeah, and I, and, and I think, you know, I, I should also say that I probably benefited as well as my dad in his, in his 40s now at that point of getting out of that phase of feeling financial uh, uncertainty. 
uh, then started saying, you know, actually, you do need to invest for your future. And he, I think he sat me down with an RBC, uh, you know, representative to basically teach me the basics of compound is- interest and these kind of things that definitely had bearing of saying that this has value at, at an early age. So, you know, there's a number of things that, that helped out that way that, you know, he helped change my mindset to some degree around, you know, taking on a bit more risk early on versus just saving away and putting it in a, you know, under your mattress and not trying to generate some kind of a return on your money that you are saving. And did you, did you like as a high schooler save, like you were taught to save already at a really early age? Yeah, for sure. We, you know, we had to, any of our, you know, personal time with friends, buying shoes, clothes, going out on the weekend, all that had to come from our, our own work that we had done. We didn't have an allowance or any setting that way. So, and oftentimes my dad had said, you know, on top of that, I want you to try your best to save $25 a month and just put it away in a banking account. And, you, you know, in some ways it was forced savings at that stage, but it was something that left a powerful influence on me to see that build up slowly over time. And all of a sudden you got, you know, several hundred dollars there and, and it was meaningful. So that early on made me understand that putting a bit aside, you realize that money didn't even exist. You don't think about it and you're still enjoying life in the right way. And, and I definitely applied that when it came out to coming out of residency and I think had a big bearing on, on kind of where my future went financially. My experience was a bit different where I think my parents didn't really say you need to put away X amount of dollars each week. I think they just always emphasized just keep working and keep working and keep grinding it out. And then I remember a few times growing up where I would be working a summer job and I'd end up spending a lot of it on, I don't know, a toy that I really wanted at the time. And then they would just berate me for spending all the money that I earned. And I said, well, I earned it. He's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, um, but I think, you know, as we get older and actually starting our careers, um, how has your attitude about finances changed or if it has changed at all? Because um, I think we're all very lucky to be in the profession that we're in and we make a comfortable living. And with any comfortable living, I think you're, very uh, influenced to maybe spend a little bit more, uh, enjoy your, your, your finances a little bit more, but it comes to a, a, a threshold where certainly you don't, you don't want to fall away from some of the principles that you were brought up with in terms of saving. So, I, I mean, I think that's something you emphasize in your blog. Yeah. I remember paying yourself first, right? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, a lot of people tend to want to instantly go to investing and trying to generate the best return they can, they can get. And, you know, what's the best way to go about that? And do I go to private bankers or do mutual funds or index funds? And, and that's a huge level of focus. But honestly, the vast majority of wealth building 100% comes down to just learning how to manage your expenses, saving first. And trying the higher percentage that you can save off of the income that you make, uh, the the quicker you're going to get to financial fr- freedom. And that's the concept that really, as I was reading through it in residency, I just it just felt like it clicked for me, and it felt as if I was a perfectly happy person in residency, and I knew that my wife was also perfectly happy. And if we could live be happy living in that amount of money, then why would that change when we make you know double, triple, quadruple that amount? It it shouldn't change and and we could still be perfectly happy in the same way we are right now and it would just allow us to get that initial ball rolling in a big way because 20 30 years from now when doing the calculations it just became apparent what that would be and i think at that stage it just seemed it seemed to make sense i don't know i don't know if there's any better way to explain it so you know finding the balance of between actually enjoying life and and that right amount of saving was definitely 
a challenging thing. And I think we all go through that. And the tendency for everyone is to go on the enjoyment front first and then try to tail, tail back. Uh, obviously, that makes it a whole lot harder, though. And it's really hard that if you shift your lifestyle to being enjoying more, it's hard to go back to the lifestyle before. Yeah. Like, I don't think you go backwards in lifestyle. I think you can only go upwards. And you can go as high as you possibly want, right? Well, not well within reason, of course. But I think the common denominator for investing that I've heard from some of um, even our senior colleagues is, is the best part of investing is time, mm-hmm. right? So you, we always, if you invest earlier, uh, probably time is the biggest advantage that you have. Exactly. Right? Um, and um, do you have any comments? Sure. No, that's okay. That's okay. I'm used to it with you, Ben. Um, <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think the one other thing that I would say, I don't know why the microphone is trying to escape from me, but I think the one other thing I would say is that, um, you know, as as I've, I've progressed in my career, um, I feel my age, you know? So I, when you're going through residency and fellowship, you, I, I remember I was actually talking to this, this uh, financial advisor and I had talked to him like four years ago and I was in fellowship and he asked me when I wanted to retire. And I said, I wanted to retire at 75. So, <laughs> so, so, and then he asked me four years later and I was like, I need to look at like a freedom 50 package here. So, um, I, you know, I, th- I think the, the thing is, is that as you age, you feel more tired. I could only do what I'm doing now for the next probably 15, 20 years um at, at the at the pace i'm doing it at um so uh i i think that on that basis i i wanted to save money and and make money and i think the other thing is it's really nice to have uh passive money so money that you're you're not working for um or or so whether that be investments or property or whatnot i i think the concept of working for all your money um, is unfortunately uh, not something that uh, that jives with me. So yeah. No, I think you're spot on though. It, it it honestly it is when when you feel the drive to constantly work to keep up with your lifestyle expenses, right? That is when you're now you know the, this proverbial rat race where you're feeling like you're a slave to the process, the slave to your possessions because. You may want to take a vacation. You may want to see an opportunity where you can do something different and you aren't able to do it, right? And and the, the converse side of, to that as you flip it, and it seems wholly unattainable initially, but most people that are coming out of residency with the right set of mind in that early phase can be retired within 15, 20 years, I think consistently without anything special happening. And when you get to that phase, now you can really know if you're enjoying what you do because you know you're not doing it for the money. And that and that is a very powerful process because you pick exactly what you want to do in life. And more often than not, you do fall in love with medicine again is what the people that are in that position tell me because they don't feel like they're going to work just for the paycheck anymore. Um, you know, they, they feel like they were when they were young in med school with that idealism that they're, they're, they're doing it for the right reasons again. Yeah, I personally never had that feeling, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll take your word for it. So... <laughs> I feel like people who are listening could say that while we're we're speaking from obviously a physician standpoint, which which we are, we're speaking again from our experiences. But I think some of the principles that we talk about are applicable to any career or any field, right? 
yeah, you know, definitely I wouldn't say that the, you know, I think as physicians, you're in a very, bene- you know, lucky spot to be able to say that in within 15, 20 years of the right principles, you can be in a position to be financially free. There's a lot of other professions that wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity set in front of you. But it doesn't change the fact that with the right set of principles of saving and compound interest, that anybody, no matter what setting they're in, can be in a very good retirement uh, overall within a very reasonable time frame just by putting those principles in play early on. Yeah, especially living in Vancouver where it's, you know, really expensive just to afford rent. And, you know, a lot of people are spending a majority of their paychecks just on day-to-day living. Um, But again, I guess it comes down to what kind of lifestyle that you can adapt to. And depending on your lifestyle, there's always an opportunity to save, I would would feel. I I think so. You know, there's there's a lot of things that we... You know, as an example, anyone who's interested can look at this uh, Mr. Money Mustache website and talking about this uh, engineer who at a, at a setting of, I think it was 29, he basically retired and he lived an incredibly frugal lifestyle in settings like in the GTA area and then later on in the, in the Colorado area. And these aren't cheap places to live, but if you really put your mindset to something, there's ways to, to save money, right? Cell phone packages that go way down to pay, pay as needed. Uh, riding a bike to work. There's many different things that you can do, and 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 that's still somebody with a professional job, but that can apply to a number of different people. And he's created a movement where people are using frugality in a significant way. That off of you know thirty, forty thousand dollar incomes, they are able to retire within fifteen years, twenty years with these principles. So, I, I, you know, certainly we have a huge advantage to start with with big incomes, um, but but it's 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 possible to do with any any setting. And I think it comes down to personal preference because you could have some people saying that, you know what, we, I don't want to live a frugal lifestyle. I want to be, I'm okay living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. or saving 10% of my uh, paycheck because I'm still able to experience the things I want to experience. So again, it comes down to personal preference, just like what vehicle you use to invest, mm-hmm. right? So um, I, I think that the vehicle you use to invest is whatever you're comfortable with. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer and, uh, you know, I read all these financial blogs that you should invest in stocks and diversify, which is all general principles. But at the end of the day, it's whatever you're comfortable with. Oh, 100 percent. I think that's the most important part of it is to get to that level of comfort zone that, you know, you're not going to do something silly when the volatility of the market you know, plays out that you can't predict. Uh, so that that's a very important part of things. I think as you educate yourself, what you might feel comfortable with after some education might be very different than what you were comfortable with on day one of, of knowing nothing about how the investment world works. And so I think that's the part of recognizing that there's no better way to go through the process than educating yourself. Because when push comes to shove, shove if you're relying on somebody else's opinion, uh, as soon as things go badly, you'll suddenly wonder, should I trust this opinion? And I think that's what happens more often than not. And that's, again, what I was seeing in 2008-9 with a lot of the doctors I was talking to is everyone had a different opinion as to what they should be doing next. Everyone was frustrated with whoever they were getting their advice from and everyone was looking for a change. But inherently that couldn't make sense because everyone had a different opinion and everyone was now looking for a different advisor and they were all going to go in a big circle. So, you know, inherently you have to get do some own work there to be able to get yourself in the right. I think so. And then it comes down to financial literacy. The frustrating thing I find when I say watch BNN is that it's really these people who have all they have is opinions. Right. I mean, if they were truly fact based, I think, and you followed what they did, everyone would be multimillionaires. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, 
I, I'm not sure as to what sort of strategy uh, to use, um, just because of the fact that you guys have already talked about this. There are so many opinions out there. It's difficult. It's really difficult to decipher um, what you should do, um, particularly when these opinions are based on, I think you had talked about this earlier at dinner, the, on so-called experts. Um, so as a, as a non-expert, as an amateur, it's it's uh, very difficult to to see through that minefield. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it, it is one of those situations that uh, you know, and, and being science brained, you want to go to objective data points, and and the reality is, if you really go to that at this point in time, it's pretty hard to argue. I think the the indexing approach to saying reducing your fees and reducing that fee drag is probably for the uninformed investor who's not going to do a ton of work is the right answer. And there, there might even be the point that even for the informed investor who thinks they know what they're doing, even still indexing is the right way to go because that 1%, 1.5% spread that, that can happen is a huge compounded amount over a long period of time. So I, I think we, we in medicine, we go towards looking for grade 1A evidence uh, all the time and we, we hang our hat on it. But when it comes to investing, we go on expert opinion, which when we grade it on, a, on an evidence-based scale is way lower down. And, 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 but, but inherently, we want to search for that extra value is just part of what almost all of us do. That's where the dilemma comes. And, and investing is also dependent on what your risk tolerance is, right? I think um, if you, you're younger, you probably have uh, a higher risk tolerance than say when you're kind of nearing your retirement phase in life. And also I think it's dependent on how much work you want to put in. So for example, if you are more slanted towards a real estate portfolio, you're going to know that there's more work involved with managing an income property compared to managing an index fund. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. The, the pain and the ass factor of having real estate, you have to recognize that your time value is part of that, that picture. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a hard concept to entirely figure out what the right way to invest is for you. I think part of the problem is that that concept of total conservatism is, is felt to be safe for you because you're not going to lose any money. But you have to recognize that the inflation aspect of things will eat away at your, your money over a period of time. And so you have that inherent hurdle that you have to get past. And so short-term conservative in, in, in the long run, if you guys happen to have a retirement portfolio, will be risky long-term because you're not keeping up with inflation. So that's the reverse mindset. That's what I really focused on at that stage is recognizing that if I'm putting something away for 20, 30 years, like you said, at a young, a young, a young age range, you got a lot of time to let volatility work its way out and, and do well. Um, as you get older, as you're close to retirement, that's when you get started having to pull in your conservatism in your portfolio. So if you had a friend that approached you, Karen, and said they had a certain amount of money that's sitting in the bank in a savings account, um, but they were very risk adverse, uh, would you literally flat out and say, well, you're basically losing money? Then, Yeah, I think you have to go through the process of actually showing them, which which, which I've done. You know, I have a couple of family members that are quite conservative in, in their approach, uh, inherently very risk adverse. But after you really walk somebody through and show them, this is what this is what your dollar that you earn today, the purchasing power of it will be in 20, 30 years. It's not going to buy anywhere close to what you, it's buying now. Uh, if you invested in, in cash, this is what it's only worth 30, 40 cents at this point in time. And when you put it in that perspective, people start understanding pretty quickly. Well, I don't, I don't want to 
get 60 cents eaten away over time and they change their mindset. But do they get frustrated when they initially start losing money? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and yeah. This, this is this is again the thing. But I, I, I guess the question is, did you lose money? And that, that and that's a really fundamental question, because if that was put away for the next 15 years, if you could really say I put this in, in under lock and key for 15 years, that's not money for me now. That's money for my future self in 15 to 20 years. So I didn't lose any money. I only lose money if in 20 years time it's different and, 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 and it's still low, which is very unlikely to happen by the nature of, of how the capital markets work. And um, I mean, investing is again, long-term. So people who day trade, I don't consider that investing. That's speculation for sure. That's, you know? that's speculation as well too, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having an inherent bias. I'm a poker player by background initially, and that, that, that has a whole other background to me. So I understand short-term volatility. That'll be uh, the next podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I've, I've gone through that in, in terms of short-term volatility and, and seeing potential value there. But even still, anything in that short-termism is just speculation. It's going to the casino and flipping. I, I don't think there's any question around that. And so people who are very amateur and, and, and trying to learn, are there any resources or, or books that you used kind of to educate yourself? Honestly, for the first phase of it is is that personal finance front. It's understanding the savings part and understanding that concept of building assets. Uh, I, focusing on investing should be like the last five percent of all the reading you should do. Um, and so you didn't read the Wealthy Barber? I did read the Wealthy Barber. <laughs> I, I, you know, all of those books are excellent books in my opinion. They they make it really easy and accessible for the average person. You know that even Rich Dad Poor Dad, which after the fact when I've read it now. I see a lot of flaws in it. It's very valuable the first time if that's your book that you're getting introduction from. Um, and, and honestly, nowadays with all the different podcasts and, and finance blogs, there's a ton of good resources out there as well on that front. Um, but it just really comes down to searching for it and, and finding something that fits for you. But I find it like when I read those books, they all kind of center around things that we've talked about today, yeah. right? I think time, risk profile, uh, Diversity—it's all variations of, of that. I don't know if you agree or not, but I think so. But I think it's also—it's like if I tell Razi something with just my opinion, that doesn't necessarily ring true. But as he reads it over and over and over, I'm 100% going to follow whatever Karen tells me. The more the more times you see it, and the more time you hear it, the more times it starts to sink in as a as a as a solid concept that becomes in foundational to you. And that's what that's the big difference, I think, that uh, makes the difference between being able to move in the right direction long term is to have that fundamental core belief the same way that you believe in some of the science that you've learned in other areas. That's the foundational belief you have to have in your financial plan. And when you have that, you can go through any of the variations that are going to happen in one year, five year, 10 year, 15 years, because you know what works for you and you know you have your mindset set out. And so I think expounding that multiple times over is valuable. So what do you tell people who say, you know what, I'm too busy. I don't have time to invest or manage my portfolio. Like, what do you, what do you tell people who say they're too busy and don't have enough time? From my lens of looking at the physician, like my, my blog is primarily geared towards professionals. So if I were to speak to a professional level, um, the time that you're committing right now, if you're in your late 20s, early 30s, the value of that work now is actually more valuable to you that regardless of how much money you earn in your profession, you are going to see more value of that education now 
for what 30 years of compound interest on your savings could be. Honestly, I really believe that. Uh, as you start getting to the end of your retirement, that time and work that you're putting up front right now is more valuable than the average day of work that you would have done. Uh, because the earlier you start, like you mentioned, compound interest, if you can start at 18, which none of us can do because we went through professional school, that has a huge impact. And so starting at 28, 29, 30 will make a big, big difference. Most people don't do it because they're just paralyzed with fear from the overwhelming nature of this whole new world that that you know seems like you can lose and there's tons of risk. So they just delay the process of investing. And, and that's the worst mistake you can make. So yeah, you can say I'm busy and I, it's more valuable to work harder and just make the money now. I don't think that's the right, the right answer though. And why do you think doctors have such a bad reputation that we're not good at finances? I mean, I think that you know, going through professional school, you show that you can you can read concepts and understand concepts. But for whatever reason, even when I talk to some of my financial friends, they always make fun of physicians as saying, oh, you guys are terrible. Well, you guys are the best clients because you guys don't know anything. Is it fear? Is it laziness or or just no interest in it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think it goes two two and three ways. I think it comes down to number one, you inherit as, as somebody who deems themselves experts in a field, then you inherently want to trust other experts in a field. The difference being that the expert in the field of finance has an inherent advantage that, that is not in your best interest as well. Some of the time, it doesn't imply that every financial planner doesn't have your best interest. It just, when I'm giving somebody medical advice, there really is no benefit to me if I give them the advice. I'll just tell them exactly what I think versus I, if I can get a 1% to 2% rider on the advice I give you for ever and ever, as long as you stay with me as a client, there's a clear bias in what I might be telling you in terms of what the best investment is. So um, that expert bias is a big part. And do you think physicians are such type A personalities and control freaks that we just don't feel comfortable relinquishing control to somebody else? Well, yes and no. I think there's a lot of people that just pass it off and say, my best time is spent doing medicine and I'm going to leave this to the experts in the finance world. Now, what does happen, and, and there's very good literature around this, that when an individual investor starts taking control of these things by themselves based on volatility in the market, they tend to do the opposite of what they should. So they, they when things get scary, like 2008-9, they pull everything out from their advisor. They say, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I'm gonna put this all in cash and I gotta try to find the right fit. And they wait and they wait until it seems safer in the market. And really they've sold at the bottom and they miss the rebound that happens afterwards. And then they get in once the market's already increased. So they're their own worst enemies in that sense. And oftentimes, when you start getting some degree of confidence in thinking you know what you're doing, it, it also can go the wrong way on you as well. And, and being experts in our field, that works against us because we very quickly want to think we have expertise in finance now. And I know exactly what I'm doing. I don't need anyone. I don't need any advice. And that can go the wrong way. So there's multiple different features, I think, of it. But, I, you know, there's, there's multiple physician groups. There's a Facebook physician group that has many interested people and a lot of people are taking control of their uh, personal finances and and it's it's start, starting to change I think in a big way. And I can tell actually Karen you're very passionate about this so I think part of your enjoyment is really the, the learning process and, and educating yourself. Oh definitely yeah and I think but you know everything already so what's, what's, <laughs> what's more to learn? No, it's, it's, it's just like in medicine where you as, as the more you know you the more you realize you there's so many levels of stuff that you don't understand and how it's working at on a bigger level. And the more expertise we get in certain areas, the less we know about other areas. And that's the same with finance, honestly. I think the other thing, though, is that, 
you know, in med school and residency, there's no real push for us to learn this stuff. It's not part of the curriculum. It's not part of um, educational sessions that we have. It's all in the background. And if anything, it's considered um, rude or, you know, um, I, I don't know, like uh, lowbrow to talk about money. We don't even talk about salaries. You know, when I came out here, nobody talked to me about how much money I'd be making. Um, I just find in, in for whatever reason in medicine, it's considered beneath us to talk about money and how to make money and how much money we're going to make all of it. And I think that's something that sort of has to change um, given given, you know, the reputation that we have and, and um, given where a lot of older physicians are when it comes to finances. So uh, I, I think there needs to be more responsibility in, in starting in med school about um, how to spend, where to spend, um, and and why we should do things like invest and save. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you know, when you come out and work, uh, a lot of us are um, independent business businesses basically mm. and we're not taught anything on how to manage an independent business and i think that when your physicians even viewed by the general public we're viewed as uber altruistic we're doing this because it's our calling and and don't get me wrong obviously it's a very uh, privileged and, and lucky profession to be in but at the same time i do believe it is a job it is a job and, and, and a job means you get remunerated and compensated and you have to understand how to deal with that compensation, right? Yeah, I better be remunerated. I mean, <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, I mean, all, all those things. I, I, like I said, I, I really don't think that there's an emphasis on any of it when we come out. We, we, it's like a blank slate. Uh, I remember where when I came out, uh, someone offered me a, a position in their office and, you know, I didn't know any better, so I, I took it. And I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do, but perhaps I should have put a little thought into into this major decision um, that I was going to make that probably would have an effect for many years to come. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think in general we're just, you know, the whole emphasis um is on medicine our practice how we take care of patients and then in the background there's all this other stuff um that's extremely important and i would say that it's important enough that it impacts how we treat our patients and how we behave and um how we act so uh i, I just think that that we do ourselves a disservice by not um discussing it from an early time point well, and even more so, before we started this podcast, we were talking a bit about physician burnout. And when I do talk to physicians around this, a big part of it is talking about the stress of running a business when you weren't really set up at all to have to know how to run a business. We spend a lot of time understanding the medicine component. That's what we want to do. But we're forced to run a business out of this setting of running an office and managing employees and a number of different things. And that's where a ton of stress for a lot of people that weren't set up in the right way to handle this issue it does have a big bearing on on not only the success of how well they do 
financially, but even just the quality of medicine sometimes they can deliver because if you're being very inefficient in how you're running that business, you can't deliver the care that you would want. And so I think it behooves us as a profession to start paying attention to this early on in med school, like you mentioned. And as a positive point, I have seen this movement happening to some degree. There are uh, physician wellness groups that have asked for financial talks, and that's happened you know, in Ontario and as well as BC. And there's talks of residency programs starting to bring this in as concepts that were never there when we were there. So I think that, I think we see some positive stuff happening on the horizon here. And I, I, think, I think that's a flaw of the medical care system is how physicians are remunerated. I think we're rewarded for seeing more patients and volume and not necessarily rewarded for giving good quality care. And I always argue that if we were changed from a, a pay model where we're salaried, but we get a pension, I would be 100% all for that. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. Are you listening, Justin Trudeau? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and one of the pitfalls of physicians I see fall into is that, you know, we work hard and oftentimes we feel like because we work hard, we deserve to enjoy. And, and, and that's such a common pitfall where you can't be enjoying all the time. And then just every other people work hard too. And they don't, I don't necessarily think that they feel like, Oh, I deserve this. But not as hard as us. Right. So (laughs) (laughs) you better behave. Otherwise this is the last time you're on digging deeper. Um, But you know, I, I, I see that a lot and, and, and you're like, Oh, and you don't equate what you spend to actual dollars. You equate it to how much work it would take to get that certain thing. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think I think we we start monetizing or, or we start, um, I, I don't even know what the term is, but you, you determine how much you have to work to obtain some sort of material object. Um, I, I think that's that's a really, really dangerous game. Um, so I, I, I completely agree. I, uh, I think um, the emphasis should be on, on starting early. Well, and, and in that same concept, the, the benefit of the concept of talking about pensions is not only you, you, you may take a lower amount of salary that we're receiving right now on a, on a fee-for-service model, but it's a it's an own way of forced savings, right? And when you, as soon as you're doing a pension, you're putting part of your income aside for this. And, and a lot of people would start off better because that right as soon as they come out of residency, they're in a forced savings process uh, that, that will allow them to remove this whole stress of worrying about their corporations and the business, you know, the, the, the returns that they're going to be generating and how, how and when they're going to retire because uh, that's all now taken care of and that stress is just totally removed. And, you know, I've talked about this. I have a, a, a lovely sister-in-law who's in the government and, and I talked to her about how I wish I could have that opportunity to not have to read about all this stuff in finance. As much as I enjoy it, it would have been nicer to just know my financial future is set for me. I don't really have to worry about it now. I can really just focus on doing the work that I want to do and, and moving forward with that. I just realized that you're in a very happy marriage because you just referred to your sister-in-law as very lovely. <laughs> uh, she's, a, she's, a, she's a wonderful person. But yeah, I, don't, I don't bestow that on many people. Um, so I think I want to wrap up by asking each of you uh, what your definition of being financially free is. We um, touched about it earlier, but just to summarize. Yeah, as, as the finance nerd in the situation, I'm going to have to be a bit technical on it. But uh, for me, it really comes down to this concept of your passive uh, income that can be generated from your savings uh, is, is in a setting where 
you can constantly be drawn off during your retirement without really impeding or drawing down that total balance. And what that really ends up becoming for most people is a, about a three to 4% draw amount on their total portfolio amount. Or another way to think of it is if you're spending uh, $100,000 right now, you need about 25 times that amount of money. Uh, so 2.5 million to be able to have in the bank and you could draw that amount of capital off over time and not run out of money. And when you're in that setting, you're now financially free to say, I could stop working as of today if I could maintain my lifestyle on that amount of money. That's financially free. I'm just going to give all my banking information to Karen right now. So, uh, I, uh, yeah, I that, that I have to say that's extremely impressive. The fact that you uh, have have that vast an understanding of um, what you need to be to be um, free and and not worry because that that's really what I think of when you talk about financial freedom is when I'm fifty five and probably working half or hopefully a quarter of how much I'm working now. I don't want to have to worry. That's all it is to me. Um, so um, I, I don't have any numbers in my head, which is probably not a good thing. But uh, but I, I think my concept is a lot more um, general. Um, so it's just it's just not having to worry in about 20 years. Yeah, I think my uh, definition of financially free is pretty much as simple as Razzie's. Um, but basically, to not have to work to support a lifestyle that you want to maintain. I think that's probably my definition of financially free, where you could work or not work and still be able to live the lifestyle you want to live for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the freedom to choose, really, at that moment in time. Right? Yeah. That's what it fundamentally comes down to. And, and there's, there's a number of books that talk about this, where sometimes it's that feeling of independent security that you have now to know that nothing bad's going to happen to you. For some people, it's the freedom to go and do other pursuits, right? It's, for every individual, it'll be something different, but um, you know, it's, it's the concept of really freedom to choose and where you go in life now. Actually, that was, that was really good, guys. I feel like I need a shower now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to talk to my financial advisor or something because, uh, no, no, I, I, if anything, I feel much more informed about things, um, which is impressive in the in the fact that we only talked for about forty five minutes. So, uh, yeah, no, thanks a lot, Kieran. No, I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks Kieran. That was a lot of fun. Um, so, Kieran's blog is uh, www.financiallyfreemd.com. You got it. Yeah, I have to put a big disclaimer that it's been really in in you know fits and spurts in the last little while. With uh, I got three kids and one being quite young, so. At some point in time, I'm really passionate about it. I do a lot of work, and then sometimes you won't hear from me for three months at a time. But uh, hopefully it can be a good resource for a few people. And actually, uh, just for you listening, uh, Kieran really dumbed down uh, a lot of the conversation for uh, my benefit and Razzie's benefit. Um, if you check out his blog, it's way more detailed, and I probably have to read each entry three times before I understand it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, cheers. Yeah. I just want to thank uh, Razzie Khan and Kieran Nair again for joining us for the eighth episode of Digging Deeper. Uh, again, if you like this episode and my previous episodes, please make sure you hit that subscribe button or continue to write a review. Um, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. So